We'll turn to 1 Corinthians 13. If you need a Bible, they're under the chairs in front of you. You'll find 1 Corinthians 13 on page 1150, and you'll be helped by having it open as we, as we kind of walk through this together. I want to I read it, and then we'll do a, an introduction. So 1 Corinthians 13, we'll read verses 8 to 13. There's really one particular part of this we're going to zoom in on and give attention today. 1 Corinthians 13, give you a moment for the page to stop turning on your Bibles. I'll start reading in verse 8. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now, faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. In this long section on spiritual gifts that runs from chapters 12 to, to 14, there are some gifts that we've talked about briefly as they've come up, but deserve a little focused attention. And they deserve a little attention because there's often a lot of questions that people have about these gifts. There are gifts that we refer to as the, uh, the sign gifts or the miraculous gifts. Gifts like speaking in tongues and prophecy uh, healings, miracles. They're sometimes called the, the sign gifts because there was such supernatural power behind them. They were a, a sign indicating the re reliability of the, the message of the gospel. And there's a spectrum of beliefs and some pretty strongly held views on this topic. And so I want to give you a bit of an overview first so you can see maybe where this falls kind of within in Christianity, and maybe identify where you're at or some other views. And I'm going to make a case for a particular view on these gifts. So on this spectrum for how we view these what we call sign gifts, uh, tongues would be a prominent one. We'll give more attention to that today, but there's others with this. Uh, on one end of it would be known as a, an ultra-cessationist position. Cessationists, they, did it, they have ceased. An ultra-cessationist says that the sign gifts have ceased, and so have all miracles. That basically God is no longer in the miracle-working business today. That Those have all ceased and been done away with. That would be a minority view very much. The next view would be a cessationist view. So a little further down, this view would say that the sign gifts have ceased and are no longer operable today, but God is still working miracles. That the sign gifts had a particular function for a particular time, that has come to an end. But of course God still heals people as we pray for people. God can still work miracles and he does work miracles. It's not that God is absent from his creation. That would be a cessationist view. Next would be Maybe what's called an open but cautious view. This view would see no biblical reason to believe that sign gifts have ceased. 
But the way it's practiced today is inconsistent with the biblical practice. So in other words, this view is, is open to them. They're not convinced from Scripture that they've ceased, but they look at the landscape of various churches that are practicing this, and they say, ah, that, that doesn't seem to match the Bible. If, if God does what I see in the Bible, then I'm open to that, but, but this doesn't seem to match it. It's sometimes called uh, charismatic with a seatbelt, right? I'm just kind of like open to this, but, but kind of cautious because of how it's uh, being practiced. This view, like John Piper, if you know that name, he'd probably be in this view. Uh, the cessationist view right before this would be, like John MacArthur, if that's a name you know, he would be a cessationist. Further down, we'd maybe come to a, a charismatic view. This view would say that all of the sign gifts are still active today as a regular part of the worship service. Tongues are an indicator, but not the only indicator, that someone is filled with the Spirit. This view really came up starting in the 1950s and on. It, it, there's some particular denominations, maybe like the vineyard denomination would be there. But you can find this represented actually in some different ones as well, uh, running across the spectrum. And then further down would be a Pentecostal view. They would say that all signed gifts are still active today as a regular part of the worship service. The distinction would be in their view of tongues. They would say tongues are the initial necessary evidence that someone is filled with the Spirit. This would have came up really beginning about 1901, 1906, two different events that this movement sprung up. And the distinction, although they're close between a Pentecostal and a charismatic view, would be that a Pentecostals would view tongues as necessary. If you're filled with the Spirit, you will speak in tongues. That, that would be uh, this Pentecostal view. Now, within that, you'll find some different nuances with different individual churches and believers that would fall there. But that's a kind of a broad range. To put them all on one screen so you can see it. These three you could lump together as a continuationist view because they're believing that these gifts have continued on in some way as opposed to a cessationist view that says, no, they've, they've ceased, either in an ultra sense or you know, saying there's no miracles at all or in this sense that the sign gifts have ceased, although God can and still does do miracles today. Well, here's why this is a relevant thing for us to discuss. Some of you may not need to be convinced it's relevant. You've been immersed in discussions on this, different types of churches, you're aware of the issues, but maybe not everybody is. Globally, there may be as many as half a billion Christians, those who would claim the name of Christ, that would fall into one of these categories, especially in uh, the global south, in, in Africa, uh, but obviously broadly represented in America as well. Historically, the positions have been more here, in particular a cessationist view. So the question is, who's, who's right? What, what should we practice as a church? Should we be expecting and seeing these sign gifts in our gathering today? Uh, what we're seeing in the book of Acts, what we're reading about in 1 Corinthians 12, should we be experiencing tongues and people with the gifts of healing and uh, prophecy? Should we ex be expecting that today? Or... Have those ceased? Okay, so it, it affects church life uh, very much so. I want to give you a little bit of my background because it's maybe helpful to know as I'm teaching on this. Uh, I became a Christian in high school from a church that was as far this way as you could possibly imagine. Okay, and I, I had no Christian background prior to that. Um, and there were some high school students who befriended me and shared the gospel with me. They were passionate about Christ. It wasn't just that their parents were believers 
or that their parents cared about the gospel, their youth leaders did, but these teenagers loved Christ and they loved the gospel and they shared Christ with me and came to know the Lord. And for the first three years of my life as a believer, that was all I knew. Every solid believer in the sense of somebody who was passionate about living for Christ in this community that I was in went to a church that was one of these two views. So that's just what I assumed was the norm. I was never challenged with anything different, really. It wasn't until I came to college that I met some believers who were passionate about Christ, but, but landed in this camp, a cessationist camp. And so I had to wrestle with, what does the word actually teach? I was profoundly grateful for the Pentecostal believers that shared the gospel with me. But I had to consider, what does the Bible actually teach on these gifts? Were they perhaps in error in the way some of this was being carried out in, in the body? What, what should we be doing? And so it was a bit of a journey for me over about a year of studying on my own, of interacting with other believers, and to kind of tip my hand where I'm going, I, I arrived at what would be a cessationist position. That would be our teaching position here at UBC. Uh, but I want to give you a bit of, a, of an encouragement. All of us need to interpret our experiences by the Bible, not the other way around. We don't look at these experiences we have and then read the Bible through that lens. We go, what does the Bible say? And we use that to evaluate our experiences. And that was a challenge for me for a while because there's people I loved, there's experiences I had, I had to come to terms with, well, no, what does the Bible say? The other thing I would encourage you on is, even if you end up disagreeing with the position I teach on uh, this morning, you're, you're welcome here. We, we've always had believers as a part of our body here that, that maybe would fall into kind of more of a view down here in terms of their kind of personal conviction, and, and yet they've been deeply involved here with, with relationships, and they've perhaps loved other aspects of the service, although they disagree with that part. And if that's you, you're, you're welcome here. We would just ask that you remain teachable on the topic, that you don't allow it to be a divisive thing by trying to persuade others kind of into, into your camp. Um, but you're very welcome here. With that as an introduction, I want to start walking through this passage. We're going to give particular attention to this question of the gift of tongues this morning. But I want you to note uh, right off the bat that although more time will be given there, that's not the main point of this passage. What's the main point of this passage? It's that love never fails. Right, right. look again. That's where it falls within chapter 13. That's where it begins with chapter 13, verse 8. It says, love never fails. These gifts have a particular place. They'll be wrapped up at some point. I believe it's already happened. Um, but love never fails. It never fades away. It never becomes irrelevant. This word for love never failing is the same word that's used uh, by Jesus of the Bible itself in Luke 16, verse 17, where he says it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to, to fail, to come to an end, to be irrelevant. Different views then that we might work through with the gift of tongues or particular convictions that I have. Um, and yet the most relevant thing is how are you loving people? And on through eternity, you're going to continue to love and to be loved. That's what it means when it says it doesn't fail. 
Jonathan Edwards, more than 300 years ago, wrote a book called Heaven is a World of Love. And his point there is that in heaven, we will be loving and being loved perfectly throughout all eternity. Sometimes you might wonder, is heaven going to be boring? You're going to love perfectly. You're going to be loved perfectly throughout all eternity. That will never fail. And so the main point of this passage, as all of chapter 13, is about the permanence of love. But within that, there's a statement about tongues. And that's going to be really where we're going to give our attention to. Because it affects how do we view this gift as it was described in chapter 12? How do we interpret what comes up in chapter 14? So I'm going to make a case that tongues have, have ceased. I'm going to describe what this gift is as we see it in Scripture and then walk through what I think are some compelling reasons to believe that when Paul says here that tongues will cease, that we're now at a point where that has already happened. What was the gift of tongues? We defined it this way in chapter 12. The gift of tongues was the supernatural ability to speak in a human language not understood by the speaker. Supernatural has to do with real human languages not known by the speaker. We see it listed in 1 Corinthians in chapter 12 in two different places, chapter 13 coming up here, uh, and chapter 14 contrasted with prophecy. But we really only see it described in action in the book of Acts, at least in a narrative sense. And so we go back to the book of Acts and we see what happened with this gift. At the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Jewish people gathered from all over the known world at the time, bringing different languages with them. And when the Holy Spirit came on these believers there, they began sharing Christ with them, proclaiming the gospel to them in their own language that they had not previously known. That was this gift of tongues. It comes up two other times in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 19. In both of them, though, there's less and less detail given. In chapter 10, it says they spoke in tongues just as we did, referring back to this incident in chapter 2. So it's reasonable to conclude it's the same thing. In chapter 19, there's even less information given. So we conclude it's the same practice uh, continuing on. So that's what it was. Well, and then what we see in 1 Corinthians 13 is this statement that the gifts of tongues would cease. And, and both the word itself and the tense of it says that it would cease on its own. Notice, and I hope you have your Bibles open still, look again at verse 8. Notice there's a difference between the way prophecy and knowledge and tongues are described. It says, if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. And then verses 9 to 12 give more attention again to prophecy and knowledge and when they will be done away, what will cause that. That's next week. We'll talk about that next week. But of tongues, it says they will cease. It's a different word that's used. It's even a different tense. The Greek tense behind that has the idea of something that would cease on its own, 
like a, like a battery that runs out of power, right? You've had that experience, and it's typically probably been a battery that's run out of power at the most inconvenient time for you, right? The, the remote all of a sudden stops working, and the, you, know, you can't change the channel because that has ceased. The power of it has ceased. The, it had a built-in time limit, in a sense, and, and it's done. Well, it's the same idea here behind this description of tongues, that it would cease. So the question we have to ask then, a few questions, when would it cease and why would it cease? In one sense, every believer has to be a cessationist because this says that it would cease. The question is when? Has it already? That would be the cessationist position now. Or you might say it's going to in the future, but it's clear that it will cease so the question is, has that already happened? And I would conclude, yes, that's already happened. A continuationist perspective would say, no, it's still continuing now, but it will cease someday in the future. Okay? But it says that it will cease. And it will cease on its own as it accomplished its purpose. So I'm going to make a case then that I think that accomplished its purpose in this time of the early church and has now ceased. As a sign gift, tongues cease to operate after the age of the apostles, I believe. God can and does do miracles today and throughout Scripture, and yet there's three punctuated times, each of about 60 to 70 years, where God is gifting people with miraculous abilities um, to accomplish a particular purpose. And, and those three times that we see would be with Moses and Joshua, during the Exodus and just after, with Elijah and Elisha, and then with Jesus and the apostles. Miracles run in other portions of Scripture as well, but those are three punctuated time periods where these miraculous things are occurring. And a big purpose of that is to confirm the message and confirm the messenger. Tom Pennington has a great Great uh, conference message on this that I can send you a link to. He does a, a more thorough job than I'll be able to do this morning. But he, he says this. Throughout history, God has occasionally intervened with direct miracles, but it wasn't the norm, but the exception. The primary point of miracles has always been to confirm the credentials of a divinely appointed messenger to establish the credibility of one who speaks for God. Not the only purpose, but a primary purpose has been what it confirms about the messenger who brings a message from God. So you think of Exodus chapter 6 and 7 where God is pointing Moses to go to Pharaoh and he wonders, will he listen to me? And he gives him some miraculous things that he will do that confirm the message. Or we see this described by Jesus of his own miracle working. Of course Jesus is showing compassion to the blind man by healing him, uh, to, to the one who's, who's sick and injured. I mean, of course he's showing compassion. But notice what he says. He says, the testimony, this is John 5, 36, the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. These miracles confirm and testify to his identity and his message that he brings. He says a similar thing in John 10, 24 and 25. It says, the works that I do in my Father's name testify about me. In Acts chapter 14, it says this about, about the apostles as well. 
Acts 14, verse 3, it says, Therefore they spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. These signs and wonders were testifying to the identity, the God-given message of these apostles. Hebrews, speaking back to the same thing, Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? This gospel message given, it says, after it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. That's this initial generation, not just the Lord, but those who heard from him. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. It's confirming the message and the messengers. It was testifying to them. So that when Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that the church, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, it's these miraculous gifts during this time of the apostles and prophets that was a foundation confirming this message. And when you build a building, you don't continue to lay the foundation every story, right? It has its purpose to hold up the structure He's saying that was the, this ministry of the apostles and prophets and believe these signed gifts during that early stage to testify to this message. So as a signed gift, I believe it would cease after that period was done. Building on that a little bit, it wasn't just a signed gift. In chapter 14 of Acts, we'll see it's described as a judicial sign of Israel's judgment. And as a judicial sign of Israel's judgment, tongues ceased by AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem. So in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians that we'll get to in coming weeks, it's contrasting tongues and prophecy. And he says this about tongues. Acts, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 21. In the law it is written, and he quotes from Isaiah. And this is a passage from Isaiah speaking to the Jewish people. It says, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, this people being the Jewish people. Even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then... Tongues are for a sign, not for those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. He says it's a, a sign, a warning to them. They won't listen, but it's a warning to them. And then judgment will, will come. And, and as we look at what happens in history... It's indeed what Jesus says as well in Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2. If you remember, Jesus is with his disciples and they're looking at the temple structure in Jerusalem. And he says, I tell you that not one of these stones will be left on top of the other. and will be destroyed. And that was fulfilled in AD 70 when the Roman general Titus came through and in this massive slaughter wiped out this city. There had been a rejection of the gospel message, not by all of the Jewish people. Many turned. The foundation of this early church was built by many Jewish believers, but, but many of them refused. And the gospel is still going out and welcome and inviting them, uh, and yet this particular focus on the Jewish people says they were refusing this. God still has a plan. He's still going to work in a particular way in this nation, in these people. Uh, and yet it says in some way that tongues were a sign for them as these people were speaking with this different language. And as a judicial sign, they, they refused, though. So that would be another evidence. I'm going to walk through a few more things here. The lack of reference to tongues in later New Testament books implies that tongues have ceased. 
There's several gift lists in the New Testament. We talked about these when we began 1 Corinthians 12. Tongues really only shows up in the earliest ones. In 1 Corinthians, it shows up there. We read about tongues in the book of Acts. It's mentioned briefly at the end of Mark. But the lists in Romans 12, in Ephesians, in 1 Peter, none of them mention tongues. Now, that's an argument from silence. And so it's a weaker argument. We have to acknowledge that. We don't want to build strong arguments based on what we're not seeing. And yet the point is that this is consistent with a cessationist view that these gifts were for this particular period. And as they wrapped up, we would expect to see less reference to it. It, just, it matches what we would expect to see. But it is an argument from silence. So I would concede that. This next point is kind of along the similar lines. The lack of reference to tongues throughout 1,800 years of church history implies that they've ceased. We see tongues described in these early books, as we just talked about. And then as we look back at church history and authors and preachers from those early years, their view as they look around is that it, it had ceased. Now, they're not, it's not scripture, but it just shows that it was an early view that as they looked around at the church landscape that it was already done. And it was silent, really, up until the early 20th century. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. But, for example, John Chrysostom, who was uh, uh, one of the early powerful uh, preachers of the gospel in the 4th century, he says this, This whole place, speaking about 1 Corinthians 12 and the gifts there, is very obscure. And the obscurity is produced by our ignorance of the facts. Okay, by the way, pause right there. In case you ever read through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and you think, oh, this is very obscure. One of the early brilliant men of the faith agreed with you. <laughs> it, it can be some confusing stuff, right? We acknowledge that. But he looked around at it and he said, this obscurity is produced by our ignorance of the facts referred to and by their cessation being such as then used to occur, but now no longer take place. He's looking around and he says, it's, it's no longer taking place. Augustine was saying the same thing around the same time. In the earliest times, the Holy Spirit fell upon them that believe, and they spoke with tongues, which they had not learned as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. These were signs adapted to the time. For there was this betokening of the Holy Spirit in all tongues or languages to show that the gospel of God was to run through all the tongues over the whole earth. That thing was done for a sign, and it passed away. Could look at Origen, who was writing about a century earlier, Theodoret of Cyrus, uh, many others at this time who were looking around and saying it's, it's, it ceased. We're not seeing it there. And really throughout church history, up until about 1901, there were very few groups that even claimed to practice this. And honestly, most of them were so aberrant in other areas of theology that modern Pentecostals and Charismatics wouldn't want to claim them in their, in their history because they tended to be kind of heretical groups, uh, but even in a minority at that. It changed in about 1901. In 1901, in Topeka, Kansas, there was a Bible college, and a guy who was teaching there, his name was Charles Partham, he believed that this gift could still be active today and should be sought after. And so with his Bible college students, they were pleading for this gift and they believed that they were given it and started speaking in tongues. Um, at least they thought so. I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, a few years later in uh, another 
revival, and it was called the Azusa Street Revival in 1906. There was another group related, but that also claimed that there had been a resurrection of this gift. As we look at those practices, though, both then, beginning in 1901, and, and I think in Pentecostal and charismatic circles today, there's some real differences between the current practice of tongues and the biblical practice. And I think that difference supports the cessation position. So in 1901, when this group in Kansas claimed to receive this, they they sincerely thought that the Holy Spirit had poured out on them again this gift of speaking in languages that they didn't know. Uh, In fact, Charles Partham, who, who was the leader of this group, he gave an interview to the newspaper in Topeka, Kansas in 1901, January 7th, 1901, which is about a week after this happened. And I want you to notice what he says about their experience. He says, the Lord will give us the power of speech to talk to the people of the various nations without having to study them in schools. A part of our labor will be to teach the church the uselessness of spending years of time preparing for missionary work in foreign lands when all they have to do is ask God for power. They have them conferred on them miraculously, being able to converse with Spaniards and Italians and Bohemians and Hungarians and Germans and French in their own language. So what did he think? He, he thought that they had been gifted with this ability to speak in languages that they didn't know. And in fact, that it would revolutionize world missions because people could be gifted with this and then sent into the world without having to study the languages. And first of all, can we just pause and say, man, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> you know, high school students laboring through Spanish too probably think that would be great if God would just give me the gift of languages, right? They thought that that was occurring. So much so that both from this group and some other Pentecostal groups that sprung out of this, they went to the mission field thinking that when they would get there, they would be able to converse with the people in these languages that they didn't know, but that were real languages, and they were profoundly disappointed. One author, uh, S.C. Todd of the Bible Missionary Society, he at the time investigated 18 uh, of these people that went out to the mission field and then came back. They went to Japan, China, India. And what he says of them, says they were expecting to preach to the natives of those countries in their own language and found by their own admission in no single instance have they been able to do so. As these and other missionaries returned in disappointment and failure, Pentecostals were compelled to rethink their original view of speaking in tongues. They're disappointed. They thought that they were speaking in these languages they didn't know. And it makes sense. They're just all in a room together and somebody begins to speak in something that sounds like a foreign language. They didn't recognize it. They thought, well, maybe she's speaking in Chinese. Maybe he's speaking in you know, German or something. And so they went overseas with it and found out that it was unintelligible. It wasn't working like they thought it would. So the view shifted. And what you'd find in Pentecostal and charismatic circles today is not a claim that they're languages that are real languages but unknown to them, but rather that it's like an ecstatic utterance or perhaps an angelic language, perhaps a prayer language. But studies have shown it bears none of the marks of real language like we would expect to find. Rather, they tend to include parts of speech that would be native to whatever language they do speak and just combined in various forms. Well, I want to consider some objections here. And maybe these are objections that you have. Maybe you're 
you're seething, right? And just kind of waiting to, 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 to talk to me to, to, to maybe push back on some things. And I would, by the way, I would love to talk to you more about this. I'm not, I'm not defensive on this topic at all. Um, but some objections that people sometimes bring up. One would be, so many sincere Christians have experienced this, what they claim to be speaking in tongues. How could they all be wrong? And, and not only just so many, but maybe believers that are close to you, maybe, maybe yourself, maybe you have some experience. And so you think, how could all these people be wrong? It's important to note that that's an argument that cuts both ways, doesn't it? Because there's so many other believers that claim that it's ceased and that this hasn't continued. And so we can't base our positions on experience or like what does the majority believe, but what does the word teach? What does the word actually teach? And is what's happening, does it match that, what's in the word? Another objection, and this one maybe more as a question, is what is happening then if somebody claims to speak in tongues today? They're often sincere people. They're convinced that this is the real practice. What, what is happening? I think a couple things, potentially. For some, I think it is a learned skill. A learned skill. And frankly, that was... That was, I think, my experience. Okay. So I'd been a Christian for maybe six months at the time, and I was in a gathering at this local church that had loved me and shared Christ with me, and there was this prayer meeting, and people were speaking in tongues around me, this kind of ecstatic utterance. And a lady that I didn't know, uh, she came up and said, have you, have you spoken in tongues? And I said, I, I, don't, I don't think so. And she said, would you, would, would you like to? Can I pray for you for that? And and I said, I, I, I guess. And so she laid on hands and began praying that I would speak in tongues. And then she began speaking in tongues, these ecstatic utterances on her own. And people around me were. And had the distinct impression that this was like not going to stop unless I spoke in tongues. right? And, and, and I wanted to, though, because these other people that I loved were practicing this. And so I just began to try to follow the pattern that I was seeing around me and follow that example. And I thought, I, I don't know if this is it, but I, I, I guess it is. This is what I'm hearing from others. So it was a, a learned skill. That was the conclusion of John Kildall in his book, The Psychology of Speaking in Tongues. He did an extensive study and he confirmed that when he could see it was people it was a learned skill as they were following the pattern of what they saw around them. For others, it may be a a profound psychological experience. And by that, I don't mean that in a negative sense. But when people have emotionally charged, powerful moments, even if it's a moment of trauma in some cases, often there's this ecstatic utterance type speech that, that they've observed. And, and so often in Pentecostal and charismatic churches, this initially is found in pretty emotionally laden, charged experiences. And so perhaps that has a factor as well. Another objection, though, that people might make is we shouldn't place God in a box. We shouldn't limit what he can do. And to say that this has ceased, you're limiting God. And to that I would say, of course we should not limit God. He is God. He can do what he pleases. He does not need my permission or yours to do anything that he says is right and good. Of course we shouldn't limit him. But he's given us his word and if he says he's going to do certain things and operate in certain ways according to his word, we follow what his word says. If God were to sovereignly decide to, in a particular situation, allow somebody to speak miraculously in this language that they don't know, well, of course he could do that. Just like 
we believe that the gift of healings, as far as somebody having that gift to be able to go about healing people, we believe that gift has ceased as well. But God still heals according to prayer. And we do pray for people to be healed. So it's not limiting God. It's just saying, what has he told us to expect by his word? You might have other questions. And I just want you to know, I'd be glad to talk to you more. Be glad to sit down, open the word, give you some resources, talk about different things. Um, want to just hit a few things here, though, that we can. And I, I want to I start wrapping up. And I want to do this in a few ways. I want to point out that there's more time given to prophecy. And prophecy will be done away. Um, we took about a half an hour to cover three words, right? And to prophecy, there's three or four verses that are given there. Uh, I was going to try to combine that all into one, but I thought there's probably too much there to do justice to questions and concerns that you might have. So I decided to split that into a part two. That'll be next week. We'll look at the distinction there between tongues and prophecy and what it means when it says the prophecy will be done away. So that's coming up. If you have questions on that, though, you want to make sure I cover, please email me this week or give me a phone call, and I'd be glad to try to work that into my message if I can. But just as it began, not with the statement about tongues, but about love, I want to remind you as we come back to that, that is the main point here. We give a lot of time to the sub-point about tongues ceasing. The main point, though, is about love. Love never fails, and he ends by saying love is the greatest. Faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So if you're trying to nail down your theology crystal clear on this topic, praise God, that's a good thing but don't neglect the love of people. And so if you have razor-sharp, crystal-clear theology on this topic, but you're failing to love the people around you, you've missed what 1 Corinthians 13 is saying, haven't you? We're to, to excel in love. Of course we want to be clear on our theology. Here's where I want to wrap up real quick, though. What is the Holy Spirit doing now? And here's where I want to end here. The concern that some have, especially from a continuationist view, a charismatic, Pentecostal, even an open but cautious, is that what is the Holy Spirit doing? If he's not gifting in these ways, what is he doing? And it seems like, like we've gutted the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And yet, no, the position of cessationism is that there's only one function, these sign gifts that have ceased, but, but there's countless other number of things that the Holy Spirit is doing. We must not downplay those. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go through these in detail, but I just want to run through them so you can see what I mean. The Holy Spirit in John, we see, is convicting people of sin and righteousness and judgment. That every time somebody comes to Christ, it's because there's been a work of the Spirit convicting them of their need for a Savior and of their sin. He regenerates a person at the point of salvation. In John 3 and Titus 3, we see, he gives a new life. There's a miracle for every one of you that is saved, you've been given new life. That is a miracle. And it's a miracle attributed to the work of the Spirit. He indwells every believer from the point of salvation. He takes up residence in your very heart and life. He baptizes every believer into the body of Christ at salvation. He joins you to a real body of other believers through this baptism of the Spirit. He fills you to empower you for godly living. He says in Ephesians chapter 5, he seals you at the point of salvation, like a down payment that he will accomplish. He intercedes for us when we don't even know what to pray in Romans 8, 26 and 27. He's producing the fruit of the Spirit in your life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. He's producing these in you. The Holy Spirit is active and alive, working miracles 
The cessationist view doesn't mean these have all ceased. It's a particular thing that he has said would accomplish its purpose and then end on its own. But the Holy Spirit is vital for our lives today. Let's pray.